What's your name? Melanie Newman. How many different employers are going to send you a W-9 at the end of the year? <laughs> uh, last year, I filed taxes in seven states. <laughs> so we'll find out this year. I think I'm at four this year. What is your primary baseball job right now? Play-by-play -play, uh, voice of the Salem Red Sox. How many female play-by-play -play announcers are currently working in professional baseball? We've had some changes this year. So I would say eight uh, between the major, major and minor league levels. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Melanie Newman. Yes, she does play-by-play, -play and she's a female. Oh, my gosh. It shouldn't be a big deal. It is for now. Very soon it's not going to be a big deal, but we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about all of her different jobs in sports and outside of sports, and we'll figure out how much longer until we stop keeping track of how many women are doing play-by-play -play in baseball. All of that and more is next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Melanie, thanks for joining me. This is fun. I'm glad to, uh, to sit down and learn more about you. No, I'm in perfect setting. You're at beautiful San Diego. Why not? Having some fun with it. I feel like I've been cyber-stalking you the last 48 <laughs> hours, but I've had like a, uh, a license to do so. so um, but with all sincerity, I'm blown away at the quantity of different jobs that you've had. <laughs> like, I was exhausted. Like, normally I'm like, okay, little bullet points here. Okay, did this, did this. And I'm like, um, this bullet page is like the entire page. And it's active. Yeah, <laughs> right. they're not prior bullet points. <laughs> so here is a uh, small sample. I'm probably going to leave a bunch out. But as she said, play-by-play -play for the Salem Red Sox. That's the Red Sox single affiliate. Uh, also reports for the ACC Network, the um, World Axe Throwing League. I can't wait to find out about that on ESPN. <laughs> uh, Liberty University work, uh, Game Day Radio, Major League Baseball, Data Operations. She has also been at AA Frisco, reporter for the Big South, host for Troy University, a TV station in Georgia, the Arizona Fall League as a communications coordinator, uh, the Mobile Bay Bears, the Atlantic Sun Conference, the Sun Belt, the Women's Indoor Football League. Yep. <laughs> a little bit of everything. And so I bring this up because I know that a lot of up-and-coming sportscasters, broadcasters listen to this, and it, it just goes to, I think it's the perfect illustration of whether you go to Syracuse or Missouri or Arizona State or San Diego State like me or whether you go to small school, like just how hard you have to work. Like yeah. the quantity of jobs, and I'm wondering, I, I want to start it off by asking you, like did you realize just how many small gigs I need to do in order to keep advancing to get this ultimate gig that I want. 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't ultimately. And uh, it, it kind of started coming more and more into realization, you know, the further you get in the industry. And especially once you finally land that baseball gig, it's great. And then the season ends and you realize so do the paychecks. Uh, so then trying to all of a sudden, you know, you've got such a great baseball network, but now you need to expand that network. And now you need to expand to different sports and, and you know, find other opportunities. And, you know, a lot of people, yeah, in a perfect world, you'd get to focus on one sport and that would be your thing year round. Kind of like you have a doctor with a specialist. But uh, saying yes to everything, like you said, world axe throwing. Did I ever think that would be my first national contract? No. Um, do they take care of me in the off season? Are they a big reason why like my electricity is still on? Yes. Um, so just, you know, not, not being above an opportunity. Um, and also not hearing a sport that you've never heard of before and just going, Oh, I don't know that. No, say yes. And then Google your life away and dig into the depths of YouTube and, you know, find the, the archived broadcast, find the ax experts who want to break down and give you a little more insight and then go into that broadcast and crush it you know, the way that you do with every other sport that you know that you know. Um, I tell a lot of people this, too, especially when they're looking at being a prospective broadcaster, is when I came out of college, I wish I had known how viable a TV station route was to the sports broadcasting industry. And instead, my brain was like, oh, well, that's a totally separate world. You know, half of that stuff's not live or they're producing packages. And then what I found out as I've gotten older is that was a very naive mindset. And what that is is daily reps. That's a year-long guarantee. That's health benefits. Um, and that's really a big asset. And I think for some of these college kids, especially if they don't have the strongest journalism program at their school, that's such a good, a good place to start. And yeah, it's going to be a city that you can't find on a map, but you know, you're, you're going to have people who are a little more tolerable and who want to work with you instead of just slamming you the first time you make a mistake. So if they can have that openness and again, the humility, get over your pride, be willing to go and, and to go into these other places, these other sports and do that. It makes your life a lot easier. I don't regret the path I've taken at all. Um, and especially, again, now it's taken me 10 years, but I finally have enough of those other small jobs that fill in my off season. This is the first year in 14 years I haven't had to go back to bartending. It's the first year in six years I haven't had to go back to substitute teaching. I wanted yet. to ask you about those. <laughs> okay, yeah. so substitute teaching. Yep. Do you have a worst nightmare substitute teaching story? So my mom was a teacher for over 35 years. I thought that's what I wanted to do. And it was basically, if you do that in college, I will not support your education. Um, and, and I get it. It's, it's such a tough world for teachers these days. So, you know, I one-up my parents and picked a less stable career with a less paying job. So it's fine. Um, but I, I found, you know, I could have that avenue through substitute teaching. And, and it was great. And it's kind of like the, the way they relate Uber. You know, you can pick up when you, when you want to work and when you can't, then that's fine. So if there were days they needed a sub, great. And if I left, you know, they, they didn't care. Um, I immediately limited myself to kindergarten through fourth grade. After a four-day extended substitute appearance for a seventh-grade class, uh, the things that came out of those children's mouths and the behavior, I wanted to, I just wanted to, like, the school needed to go away. Like, I never wanted, and, and it was one of my schools I'd been to when I was a child, and it was shocking to me. I was like, yeah, no, we're done. Like, if they, if they come up past my hip, I'm not teaching them anymore. <laughs> but, again, it, it fills in the paychecks. When, when I was a student a million years ago, if there was a sub, it would be like a free day. It's just a goof-off day. So yeah. were you like, all right, I'm just here to babysit, oh, no. or would you follow the lesson plan? They give you a lesson plan, okay. and you are expected to stick to that lesson plan. So I always did. Honestly, the biggest difference between, you know, when, when we were kids in school and these kids now is, like, cell phones got introduced towards my later end in high school. 
But, like, if your cell phone went off, if it was buried in your backpack, that thing's getting confiscated, and it's gone. And these kids now were not allowed to touch their cell phones because it's, it's considered a personal learning device. And I know very well that if we're in the middle of a presentation, your Twitter is not teaching you anything. But we're not allowed to say anything because the kids get to, you know, have their own say. It's, it's their show at this point. So I think that honestly is like the biggest obstacle in trying to go in and, and serve, you know, as a teacher for a day. When they look at you and they're like, oh, sub, it's a free day. Right. Yeah. And you've also been a bartender. What's your, uh, what's your favorite drink to sling? Favorite drink to sling. I mean, beer is the easiest, obviously. Okay. Um, or is there like a fancy cocktail that, that you like to? I will tell you what I'm in on right now. It's not fancy, but it's peanut butter whiskey Ooh. with ginger ale. Okay. I and can get behind and, and this. Here, it's a baseball name. It's called Screwball. Okay. <laughs> it's, it blew my mind, but it, it tastes like a peanut butter cookie. It's unreal. Ooh, all right. I know what I'm ordering tonight, <laughs> and the bartender's going to roll his or her eyes at me. Hey, I, and... I got you covered. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm intentionally slow playing the baseball part of your life because I'm a big believer in what you do before you get into baseball and what you do in the off season is a big part of what type of broadcaster you are, but also what type of human being you are. So that's why I want to find out about the other stuff that kind of led to this, which takes us to competing in beauty pageants <laughs> since age 15. Yep. Um, What's the best part and what's the worst part about preparing to compete in a beauty pageant? Pageants are the reason I'm in broadcasting. Um, I was morbidly shy as a kid. Like, I did not talk to anybody. I tried pageants because I saw Miss Congeniality. It's, it's literally that simple. Really? Yes. And, and being, you know, living in the South, everybody, oh, toddlers and tiaras, you were four. No. Mom was from Boston. They don't, pageants aren't as big there. So like when I told my parents this, they looked at me like, you know, I had bugs coming out of my ears and like, you want to do what? Um, and, and it taught me a lot about myself and how to take care of myself. And, uh, really developed me honestly for, I mean, the career that I'm in now, I, I hung it up two years ago. Um, and it, the difficulties changed the older I got, you know, at first it was, oh crap, the diet, <laughs> you got to, you know, grilled chicken. I didn't have a salad until I was 20. I hated vegetables as a kid. Okay. Um, so, you know, learning to eat that stuff like, oh, yeah, grilled chicken salad, no dressing, water, water, water. Great. <laughs> um, and then the older I got, the more invested I got in my career, it was trying to manage that. I mean, my, my last year in the Fall League, we're up at 8 and going to work, and, and there's three games a day. And at that point, they were still staggered. So we'd, we'd have our first game at 1, and our last game's first pitch was at 7. I had missed Georgia in a month. So I'd get home at midnight. I'd go to the gym you know, until 2 or 3 a.m., and then in between that whole busy schedule, making sure that my diet was still maintained, making sure I'm still on the phone with my interview coaches, with my stage coaches, with my makeup coaches. I mean, it's a lot that goes into that. Um, and just finally realizing, you know, I always told myself I'd go back one more time, and I knew with as much as I wanted to give to my career, it was that time to finally really be able to dive in on that and stop missing out on so much to prepare for that. But I mean, again, like they are the reason why I am where I'm at today. So I don't regret it at all. How do you celebrate? So you were Miss USA Petite in 2013. Like, how would you, how would you describe the uh, euphoria of winning and how you celebrate? Like, do you, do you get to eat pizza? Like, like what's the, what's the post game <laughs> no celebration? Rules. So the 24 hours after you get that title, 
There's no rules. So my go-to move is usually like the appetizer combo platter at wherever because everything is deep fried. And that's my life. Do I get sick as a dog after? Yeah. It's not a good time. But like, oh my gosh, cheese sticks, that's a food group for me. So like, it's the best day. Um, And that winning the USA title in particular was such a shock to me because actually, so it's a week-long competition. Um, You know, it's the 52 best delegates. And I was sick as a dog that entire week, just, just trying to get it together and, and keep everything there. And I thought, you know, for sure, I was like, maybe top 10, no way that I get past that. And then, you know, they start calling out girl after girl and I'm still there and I'm still there. And then it just hits. And, um, I, I did the whole, like the stereotypical, yeah, you cry and you flutter your hands in front of your face and you can't believe it. And I got grief for that. Practice doing that. No. Um, but that's again, like it goes back, you know, the Miss Congeniality scene, she's on the plane and she's mocking the girls with these reactions. And, and so that's, of course, that's all my family brought up after that for like two years later. So they're heckling you. Oh, oh, yeah, 100%. Whole fa- Nobody else in my family does these. So that was always back on me. When you lose, how do you react? It's a tough pill to swallow, um, especially if you, if you really – and, I mean, you have to buy in that you're going to win because otherwise why are you there? But those years where you really think you have it, and it's such a parallel to our industry, and then getting the no – and it's not your name. Um, and you just, you have to take it as... Twice as much cheese fries? <laughs> Twice as many appetizers? I, actually, I get really hard on myself after that. Oh. Like, I, you know, I, I work out harder and stuff. I might have a drink, but, like, I don't know, the food, I'm just like... I, to me, it's like I haven't earned that. And I actually, I got coached at one point. They're like, you're treating yourself like a dog when you use food as a reward. I'm like, give me my cheese stick. <laughs> um, but growing into the grace of, you know what, that's not my moment. That's not my year. You know, I have all of this other stuff going on. She probably has a much more open agenda. You know, like, do I, do I really want to give up everything else that I'm kind of circulating to go focus on that for a year? She probably, she probably needs it more. She probably wants it more. Whoever the winner is, that's how it's supposed to be. Just, you know, just trusting that your path is your path for a reason. Your story is your story for a reason. And if you've done your best to write that chapter... Just because it doesn't end the way you want it to doesn't mean that you weren't supposed to write that chapter. What events were your favorite and which were the least favorite? Oh, when I finally came into it and felt prepared and had a good coaching staff, I loved interview. Um, Again, can't wonder why. But uh, it was just that chance to be connected with a one-on-one, that personal basis to really explore it. Um, evening gown was always fun because you get to go play and twirl around and dress like you're five. And I skipped that phase of my life. I quit wearing dresses when I was two. So, um, yeah, I, I got to go back to that again. Um, I hated swimsuit with a passion because it just, it just brings out, you know, every insecurity that you don't think about because it's not normal to wear a bikini and six inch heels in front of 3000 people. Like that's not a thing. Um, and I just remember like the, I mean, my first pageant, I was 15 and those photos have to be burned. You know, a little, I was a little on the chunkier side. I didn't know how to do hair and makeup. I had, I had no idea. The swimsuit was not aesthetic for the stage. You know, the heels weren't very, uh, supportive either. It's just like the whole look needs to go out the window. Um, and it got better, but you still, it doesn't matter how hard you train because you just feel like that's that one moment where it's like any flaw you have is just, it's literally under spotlights and you are literally being judged by people. But I mean, it gave me a tougher skin. I'm not an expert in pageants, but did they ever um, did they ever ask you what do you want to be when you grow up? And if so, how would you answer? I didn't get that question, um, 
and that changes because if it was my first one when I was 15, I'd say, you know, I want to be an early elementary education teacher. And by the time that I got into college, it was, you know, I want to be a broadcaster. And the end of college, it was, I want to be a reporter. You know, I want to build those relationships. I want to tell those stories. And, you know, now it's, it's a little bit of everything. Did I think I would ever get to do play-by-play? No. But did I fall in love with it and how I've been able to make it my own? Yes. Um, and that frustrates a lot of people because they, you know, where do you want to be in five years? I'm like, I just want to be involved. I, I, I could go any sport, any team, any place in the country. If I can give something back that somebody looks back and remembers something and that's what attaches to them, whether it's a player or them to the team as a whole, that's huge. Um, I did the one sports question I did get, and that was actually the year that I won USA. They asked, you know, if I could have any if dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? And I said, oh, it's Bo Jackson. Um, and, you know, all of his philanthropic work and, and everything else. He's just larger than life. I mean, he still is. And people just sat there and they're like, she really said Bo Jackson? Yeah. Yeah. I've been waiting for that question. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, and then I got crowned and it was just, it was awesome. But So we're going to start talking baseball, but I want to transition from pageants to baseball with a tweet that you sent out at 6.35 a.m. on oh February 28th of this year. <laughs> oh, boy. And it says, PSA, colon, your issue with my physical appearance is not my problem. When I was the chunky, awkward nerd growing up, baseball didn't care. It welcomed me all the same. Before you spout ignorance about my, quote, lack of knowledge, end quote, check my resume. Have a good day, everyone, exclamation mark. <laughs> what, was it one person or what inspired that tweet? Uh, it's a culmination. Uh, Steve Berthume, credit to him with the Diamondbacks. He has always preached to me, you know, don't succumb to the Twitter trolls. Don't, don't respond that was right after the news had broken that I was being hired by Salem and, and, you know, that it was going to set this new precedent. It was the first all-female booth and all these great things. And for the most part, things were really good. Uh, the support that I see now on social media compared to six years ago is night and day different versus it just felt like you would get buried by people who would remind you over, you don't have a place here, you're female, what are you doing, you can't play. And, you know, well, half the guys who talk about the sport don't play. So, you know, come at me again about that. Um, but it was just, it was multiple comments that had piled up from different sources, from different social media platforms. And I had just kind of, I had kind of hit that peak. I was like, yeah, you know, I've I've got a little sass and I want to air it out here. But, you know, oh, like, oh, she's not a blonde. Oh, she's, you know, she's not skinny. She's not this. She's not that. She's got an athletic build. And some of it was like, I wouldn't say intended to be a compliment, but like in, in his perspective, it probably was, you know, she's thick and she's this. Why does my appearance have any any weight on on what job that I'm choosing to pursue? Or, or you know, and I see Emily Jones. Credit to her with the Rangers. I mean, the things people say to her about her appearance on a daily basis, about her hair, about her outfits. And I mean, she's got the smartest cracks in the book, and she comes back at them with it. Or she'll even post, and she'll automatically say in the post, "I don't need comments about my hair." Um, so it just, it just kind of all piled up and I was like, you know what? No, I'm good. Like I got this job because I'm supposed to be here because of stuff that was not dependent upon my look. Like does, does self-care matter? Yes. Um, does your opinion on if I don't look good in polka dots or stripes matter? No, go get a drink. Like next. (laughs) All right. Let's talk baseball. When you're growing up, what's on the radio or TV? Who's playing? What are you watching? Who are the baseball diehards in your family? Grew up in SEC country. 
So football was king. Uh, Dad's a Cowboys fan. Mom's a Pats fan. I latched onto baseball because we were 10 minutes outside of, it's called the East Cobb Baseball Complex in Atlanta. In uh, Jason Hayward, 15, gangly, knees like the size of horses. He's got big Coke bottle glasses on, and everybody's like, what is this nerd going to do? And he's crushing baseballs. Um, so as, as much as we attended football and Jim Fife, who was the voice of the Auburn Tigers until he passed away, that was the first time I kind of acknowledged an, a broadcaster's impact. It, it wasn't his style that I'd first paid attention to because, again, like, I, I thought I would be a vet and then I thought I would be a teacher. So I, I've kind of changed realms. And, and I also, again, I grew up very introverted, very shy. I didn't talk to anybody. But it was my dad's ability to connect to Fife and, and how he really made fans feel like they were right there with it and that they were part of something where I identified a broadcaster's ability to make a difference. Um, and so that, that kind of always stuck with me. And then, you know, as I got older, I started studying all these other people and, you know, gleaning different pieces and then play by play came along. And then I really started honing in on what it is that all these other people bring to the table and what I can kind of glean from without taking, trying to take over that identity, keeping, you know, keeping your own and having your own flavor when you go on air. Um, but it was funny because this is probably five years ago now. And I don't know if you ever saw like home alone, he kind of made the, the talk boys really popular, those yeah. little handheld recorders. So I had a talk girl. Um, I didn't remember. I, I remembered having it. I didn't remember what I put on it. So we found these cassette tapes and we, we hooked them up. We found a tape player. I'm running through our house giving play-by-play of what is going on in my family's life. I mean, half the time I had, like, some really atrocious three-year-old's Australian accent, but, like, I was already doing it. I just didn't know it at the time, and I was, like, hiding behind the pantry door while I did it. But, um, yeah, so it just just really morphed from this mixture of, you know, football and and being around my family until I really got old enough in middle school and high school to start paying attention to 04 Red Sox came in and, and finally started winning out because I was the one diehard. All my cousins lived in Boston. Oh, Chipper Jones, the 95 Braves, you know, they go to the, they get it every year. I'm like, yeah, but Coco Crisp. But the Red Sox, they, they can't go to the postseason. Um, but that, that was what I just, I held on steadfast to that. And then thank God, all of New England sports as a whole kind of came into their renaissance period and I didn't have to stop hate, like I got to stop hating myself for it. But yeah. What's on your walls? Is it is it athletes? Is it musicians? Is it uh, clothes? Is it uh, actresses, actors? What what's on your walls when you're growing up as a kid? A lot of horses. A lot of horses. A lot of horses. <laughs> I think I had like a, I had a Spice Girls poster. I had a kitten sitting on like a desk with like a thing of pens, and it was Picasso. That was that was about my okay. wheelhouse. <laughs> now now above my desk, it's a giant twenty four by thirty six panorama of Fenway. But oh, okay. Well, we are at the baseball winter meetings, and there's a helicopter that likes to fly by because there's Navy ships that are all around us, and so that provides a delightful background as we continue to talk to... It's very Top Gun theme. <laughs> yes, it is. Do you remember the first time you went to a Major League Baseball game? I want to say I was about 12 uh, at Turner Field. The ones that stick out the most were the birthdays that I... I have a May birthday, so they're, they're in full swing at that point, so... Uh, you know, 16 through, basically, I always chose to spend that at Turner Field, whether that was with friends or family, and those ones always really stuck out to me. And, again, that was that was still when they had, you know, they were, they, I mean, I feel like they, they go every single year and get a pennant. It's not the pennant, but, um, yeah, I want to say I was about 12 when I remember it. Now, my, my parents, we had the Olympics in 96, so 
our first trip to Turner Field was with all of that going on. Really? We went to events all the time. Yeah. Um, my sister actually disrupted. They had the Paralympics that same time as the Olympics. All of it was in Atlanta. So we would alternate events. My sister actually disrupted the Paralympic volleyball match because she was about three weeks old and started screaming, um, which was a great memory for me to have because I was like six. I'm like, I am the favorite child for life. <laughs> right, like, exactly. You didn't, I didn't have international security come after me. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was probably in middle school. Um, and, and it was hard. And that's why the Braves moved because – Taking a family of four to downtown Atlanta, there's nothing there. It was Atlanta was not a good place to be at the time, especially as a family. And, and now it's it's definitely changed. But so I know that this is somewhat cliche, but was there a time, or when was the time that you saw a female on TV doing any type of sports-related broadcasting where a light bulb might have gone on and thought, "Oh, if she's doing it, then maybe there's a path for me." So um, I was steadfast in sticking to print journalism until I attended Troy University, and their journalism program is so large that they have separate minors for print and broadcast. And my advisor straight up my first day on campus said, I think we need to switch you into broadcasting. Okay. I have no idea. Uh, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be like a desk anchor, sports center style stuff. Sure. Um, Sophia Minert, though, when I started actually paying attention and studying and, and trying to hone my craft and... Um, her videos popped up and her ability to communicate with Latin players. I mean, it just beautiful Spanish and then right back to the camera in English, allowing them to answer in their native tongue and giving it right back. There's no misstep. And it was just such a work of art. To, I mean, it really did stop me and, and just watch how she was able to produce that and just really make it so much more captivating than the whole choppy, you know, you say something, the translator says something, the player says something back, and then you've got a 15-minute interview for four minutes of content. It grabbed my attention, for sure. And then just over the years, getting to build relationships with Jenny Kavnar and Susan Waldman, um, Cindy Brunson and Alana Rizzo, I mean, that whole crew, they're just... They're the most unbelievable women that I've ever met. And, and still, paying attention, guys like Vin Scully, and you're never going to be a Scully. But remembering, right. you can tell that you can, you can be a little whimsical with it. You, know? you can bring in some of these stories that don't necessarily have 100% impact on what's currently going on. But someone's going to smile at the end of the day and be like, yeah, you know, the fourth inning. Like, she just she, she went off on this whole little tangent. It was right. great. And I've had that every now and then. They're like, yeah, you know. And I'm like, oh, gosh. This is embarrassing. No, 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 I loved it. And you're like, okay, I got it. I remember the first time that I did play-by-play. I was in college, and thank goodness it was not live. Thank goodness (laughs) it's not live. It was just uh, there was a cassette tape and a headphones, basically, and I would do an inning, and then uh, my friend and Kobe Ginsburg would do an inning, and we traded off back and forth. And, yeah, I've been listening to baseball my whole life, and I was like, I got this, right? I got this. And I just remember, like, I was horrendous. <laughs> but that's, that's the narrator. He did not. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's horrendous. What was, what was the first time? What was the first sport? What, what was the biggest, oh, my goodness, this is what I need to do? That's tough. Um, my first play-by-play assignment was our Division One volleyball program for Troy. Um, when they asked me if I wanted to do it, I'm like, yeah, okay. And then you put on the headset, and you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, this is real, and it doesn't stop moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really fortunate. Barry McKnight with Troy, he's still there. He's still their voice for most of their sports. He is like, he's like another father figure for me. It was just so inviting. Took care of all the students who wanted to be a part of it. 
and it was really his influence and just being around him um, that really made me realize, okay, you know, regardless, I, I know I want to tell these stories. And it's, it's a totally different ballgame when you have college students, but still, like, you're, you're dealing with pieces and negotiating what's fit to share with people and, and some things that have to stay in-house. And that's, that's a heavy weight. Um, but when you can kind of embrace that as something that's special, that you, you have something sacred to you that people are entrusting you with, it, it just started making everything click, that you, you can make an impact. The sport's going to happen whether you're there or not. But if you can change when people are walking away from it and, you know, protect the athletes. I mean, we had a kid who broke his foot on the road, and everybody, oh, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do? And, and then I had to realize that was the moment I was like, I can't tell you. It's not your business. Um, and, and his gratitude of, you know, Hey, like, thank, thank you for, for doing that and whatever, which was my job, but just being that heart to those athletes and, and realizing they want to be recognized for more than just their numbers. Uh, it was college and, and it just, that's always stayed with me. If your life was a movie, then near the end of act one, there would be this dramatic scene where you express that you want to keep doing play by play. And then there would be some villain in the movie oh, who would, who would say, you know, you can't because you're a female or whatever. Um, and then that would, and then I'm going to prove you wrong. And that would springboard into act two of the movie in which you go about proving uh, this villain wrong. Would any of that be accurate? Yeah, a hundred percent. I've dealt with some tough situations within uh, offices that I worked for that, that were not very happy about having a female there or, or they were initially. And then, got other preconceived notions in their head about what I should and shouldn't be doing or how I should be acting. And um, a, a lot of tears and a lot of times of telling myself, you know, I, I know I'm here and leaning on my inner circle three times over and every time that I've wanted to walk away and quit. And I, I told some kids that today at the meetings downstairs, there's a lot of job seekers. And they said, well, you know, I'm, I'm four months out of college. I'm a year out of college. I said, look, I didn't really get started until almost two years out of college. I had a lot of false starts, a lot of opportunities that were there, and then something fell through or someone, you know, straight up lied about an opportunity. And sitting there thinking, you know, is my road at an end before I've even taken a step? And it was tough. I mean, even this year alone, I was sitting at my house and pitchers and catchers reported that day, and I found out I didn't have a job for the season. Um, and, and that was the first time that my family had actually said, you know, maybe you should think about something else. And that, really? yeah, that, that hit because they're, they're usually the ones that are, you know, they're, they're hard. And they're like, Hey, you know, you, you have bills. Uh, can mm-hmm. we, can we pay those? <laughs> but for them to finally say, maybe you need to look somewhere else. And I couldn't blame them. I mean, given the circumstances and the timing and you know, what are the odds I'm going to find a job? 48 hours later, I found a job. Um, and you know, now they're, they're elated and they're, they're excited and they want to see where it goes from there. But, uh, it's, it's a lot of no's and just kind of knowing that in my gut, everybody, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Like, if you didn't do baseball, what would you do? I'm like, no, that's not, it's not a thing. Like that, that can't happen because I'm put on this earth to do this. And I know that, and that's it. Like if, if I'm not making money, if I'm not sleeping, if I'm whatever, Okay, bring it. You you choose the problems that you accept to have in your life. Um, so for some people, they're, the problem they choose to have is that they're bored at work, but they make great money. They have a great house. They have a great family life. You know, and, and all that's great. Okay, I choose to not have money and to not have a social life, but, like, am I elated when I get to walk down at 4 o'clock and I've got most of my work done, but they're coming out for BP? Yeah, that's – I will live there, and I, that's the hill I die on. 
Did I read right where you applied for a lot of jobs as Mel Newman instead of Melanie Newman in order to... Gender neutral. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's actually pretty funny. Every now and then, you know, a couple people would figure it out, especially they go to the website and they're like, oh, okay, so it's a female, whatever. Um, but the, the surprise every now and then when they're like, oh, Mel. And I'm like, yeah. And they, they turn around or, you know, they think it's someone else and they find out it's me. It just, it kind of tickles me now. Like I really, I've gotten to the point in my life where I'm not offended by much anymore. Um, but it's just amusing, you know, to, to kind of take that out of the equation, equal playing board. Okay. It's Mel. What you got? Did you hear my call? So I also wanted to talk about pageants early because you even said you develop thick skin when you're getting judged and when you're losing. And I'm wondering how much that thick skin from those have helped save, I don't know if save is the right word, but how that's like, like helped you get over the disappointment of not getting job or hearing something about you can't do this because of your gender or oh, wait, I thought that I was talking to Mel. I didn't realize I'm talking to Melanie. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, pageants for sure. I would still say the stronger emphasis with that was cracking me out of my shell, you know, honing my ability to, to communicate in one-on-one, but also, you know, to, to bring that out loud to people. You're holding a microphone. You're having to answer these questions. And, yeah, it's the same as what we're doing right now. So I didn't have that. You know, I would shake if I had to give a presentation to a class of eight. And again, taught me how to, to get in the gym. And I, I lost the chunky kid weight that I had since forever and how to dress, how to wear makeup, how to do all these other things that like females for whatever reason have to do. But the thick skin part really honed in with baseball. And, and I've said it a thousand times and it, it's something that I'll, I'll end up writing in, you know, black and white ink is that Jessica Kleinschmidt is the ultimate reason why I can handle the feedback and the negativity and just the stuff that's usually not that great to deal with Um, because she's such a strong person. And so what I always tell her is I was like, yeah, you know, when we first became friends, like I had an eclair for a spine and now like I actually have the simulations of like maybe a bone structure Um, because I was just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a yes person. I'm a people pleaser. Like I came from a military family. So if you weren't happy with me, you didn't like me. That bothered me a lot. Um, and I finally started to realize, and, and without naming names, there was one person in particular, though, who told a boss of mine in the industry, I just don't like her. No reason. You know, not, nothing, nothing to go off of. Yeah, I don't, I don't like her at all. And yeah, that kind of, that hurts. And, and all, my first reaction was like, I want to know why. What can I do to make you like me? And it's, it's that cliche, you know, you can be the best chocolate chip cookie and someone's not going to like chocolate chip cookies. And you kind of have to just replay that and go, you know what, okay, you don't like me, that's not my problem. Um, Twitter, Twitter toughened me up a lot because, again, when it first started, people who I didn't know from Adam, people who didn't even follow me, so I don't even know how they found my account, um, just saying ugly stuff. And some of it's women. Um, that's the part that would get me the most. Yeah. If, if the situation was reversed, that'd be the one where, like, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So as much as I got invested and, in, you know, well, why don't you like this? Or, or, you know, what did I do for this? And how do I change this? You just, after the years and the repetition and everything else that you go through, you just start, it just starts slowly layering up. And you're like, all right, whatever. All right, that's fine. So that's uh, the only article that came out about the news this year that had, had not shut off its comments feature was on Yahoo!, and they just came out of the woodwork, you know, and it was either hypersexual comments that, you know, no, nobody needs to read about their daughter or son. 
um, to stuff like, oh, has she ever picked up a bat? Like, bro, get in the box. Let's go. Like, I guarantee you we're both hitting below Mendoza right now. Um, and that's when it kind of clicked with me how much I had grown and, and been able to accept it because I wasn't upset. I was like, all right, that's what you have. Like, honey, I've been hearing the same comment for 10 years. Like, let's get original here, please. So you mentioned how you went from not having a job and your parents saying, well, maybe there's something else for you to do. And then 48 hours, you end up in Salem. Give us the the details of what occurred in that 48 hours and what led to um, you getting there. Yeah. um, So I had kind of thrown my hat in the ring for a number two job with Corpus Christi. And, you know, I'd I'd had a year in the Texas League. And it's a different Texas League and different number two. Um, Emma Tiedemann had as well. And she's become such a good friend of mine. And so she called me and she said, hey, you know, I, I didn't get the job, but it just seems like it's such a job fit for you. Like, please tell me you got it. I'm like, well, <laughs> I didn't get an email, so I'm going to assume no. <laughs> uh, Been there. <laughs> yeah. Um, she called me back maybe an hour later. And at this point, again, with my job with data operations, I was very lucky. I already had at least work for spring training set up and I had asked my bosses to be assigned to Florida because I'd done Arizona for a couple of years. I wanted to change. Um, she called me back maybe an hour later and she said, you're, you're never going to believe this. Dom Catronio, who had just accepted Salem three weeks ago is who got Corpus Christi. He's going to leave Salem. I thought you gotta be kidding me. So I had, I had, I'd kind of waited on it and made it strategic. Social media for us is, is a marketing platform. It's not always just personal. Um, so I had released 24 hours prior, you know, I'm a free agent now I'm looking for broadcasting and and was just hoping anything would come up. But at that point, uh, Susie had reached out to me and she said, you know, Hey, I just, I saw that you're looking for a job. I can't believe that happened to you. Like, that's unbelievable. You're going to find something. And then the news about Dom leaving came out. And so I messed her back. I said, Hey, so you wished me good luck. But you can maybe help me out here a little bit. So she, she set me up with Alan Lawrence, and, and I called he and both Ryan Shelton before he left. And um, it was such a natural fit from there. Just not, not even between myself and Salem, but myself and Boston, the organization, and, and what the Red Sox want to portray about their prospects and, you know, what they ultimately want out of that connection for the broadcaster to deliver. And it, it was just that really serendipitous match timing whole nine. I was staring at the 11th hour. I was already in Florida for spring training. I'm driving between um, Tampa because we had a Yankees game and I had to get to Sarasota for an Orioles game. And I'm on the phone doing my interview while I'm like trying to fight Florida traffic. And I'm like, please let me get this job. Just please. Imagine if you got into a car accident while you're while you're doing it. Let's uh, knock on wood on that one. That would be my luck. Yeah. Okay. So you said Susie. That's Susie Cool. Who is that how you pronounce it? Cool. Okay. So she in 20... 18 had started to do a little bit of play-by-play. Is that is that correct? She came on. Uh, she was doing a little analytical work with okay. Ben Gelman. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So during that interview, while you're on, while you're driving, was was the topic at all of this is going to be a all-female broadcasting team? How much, if any, was that discussed? Not at all. Really? Yeah. Um, it's the first interview I've had in my 10 years where they didn't ask how I would handle a clubhouse. They didn't ask how I would be okay being a female on the bus. Um, they didn't mention that, you know, Su- Susie joined me for about 20 games last season, and there was no mention of, you know, it'll be two females in the booth. Um, but, it's, you know, what direction you want to take this in? Are you okay with this type of circumstance? This is how our travel is. This is, you know, it, it was very black and white. Um, it was really the first interview I've ever had where 
nothing was out of the ordinary. Like I'd, I'd have to imagine that it would be the same interview had, had it been a male in my place and not me. So when it finishes, and I know you're driving, but are you thinking, like, was it like a relief? Was it like, ah. After they offered or after the interview? Oh, either or. <laughs> Um, after the interview, it just, it had just felt like a conversation. I mean, Alan Lawrence is a very laid back individual. He's, he's so inviting for our whole front office staff. I've really never worked for a general manager like him. Um, so it just didn't really feel like a lot of pressure and I felt good about it. I mean, you know, I grew up a Boston girl and it's the Carolina league, which I've romanticized about for forever because I could quote Bull Durham backwards and forwards. And, um, you know, the timing was so perfect. How do you argue against that? So I, I just I felt good about it. And, and Alan seemed really excited about it. He liked the work I did in Frisco. Um, so I, you know, I sat and prayed on it. And if it's going to happen, great. If not, well, crap, we'll figure something else out, which honestly would have been probably doing statistics for the full year, which is fine. It puts me in a ballpark every day. Uh, and then when they offered, you know, he's like, yeah, you can take the weekend. I'm like, I don't need the weekend. Like, yeah, yeah, it's just a yes. That's all there is. Like, I don't even need an hour. It's a yes. I don't have to call my family. It's a yes. Like, let's go. Um, April 23rd, 2019 is the first game that you and Susie broadcasted a game together. Um, I saw some photos from that. First of all, it was the broadcasting booth as tiny as it looked in the photos. Oh, it's, it's not even a booth. It's like a single wide trailer. Um, so you, you get up to the top in Potomac and it's all open. So, you know, you, I don't know if you used to take tests in school. If you sat at a table, your teacher would put those dividers up between you and the kid next to you. Yeah. So you're not really divided and you're kind of divided. That's literally how it is. So we had the PA announcer right to our left. Um, the official score was right to the right. Home was one man over past them. So even with the headphones on, like if you stop talking for a minute, and you start trying to go again, like, I'd find myself mirroring Eric's call. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Like, no, nope, we can't, we can't have the same broadcast <laughs> at the same time. Or, like, I'd be telling a story, and I, I love weaving that color into it. And, yeah, sometimes it's comical, but, like, I'm talking about our guys going through the outlet mall in Potomac and the, the craze over the earbuds at the time, and their PA announcer's just dying laughing, and God love him. Like, that means I'm doing a good job telling the story, but, like, that's getting me laughing because I'm hearing him laughing, and I'm like, I just, I need my own, like, fishbowl <laughs> over my head at this point so I don't have to hear anybody else. That's tiny. Um, the media coverage that day blew me away. I felt a little awkward. Like, I, I want to talk about my guys. You know, they, they only have so long that we get to share their stories. Uh, so it was NBC and The Athletic and Nesson and the Red Sox and ABC and all these people showed up. And God love Potomac. They're like, where are we supposed to put these people? Like, we don't have a media area. And they've got GoPros clipped onto the windowsill in front of where we're calling the game, you know, filming in back at us. It's not even filming the game. They've got big cameras set up on the bleachers that are, are elevated at the top of the tripod going back into the booth. And I'm like... Am I going to be able to watch the game? Like, what are we doing here? It was just, it was the most surreal day of my life. I don't take any of it for granted. Um, Britt Giroli was there with The Athletic, and, and she's since become a really good friend, and I'm, I'm grateful to have her, and Casey McDonald and Drew Garland, but just all these other people who were there. But just there, and of course, like, I heard about it from the players for months after. Of course. Like, like, oh, no, no camera crew this right, time? Right, of course. No? Uh, by the way, Brittany's article is the best. Amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. But that's what happens when you work for a media entity that's going to allow you the time and the space to do it properly, yeah. right? Like, her yeah. story was really good. Um, 
It's funny, when you were describing the booth in Potomac, it made me think about the booth with the San Jose, in San Jose Giants because it's very similar. Okay. And my first year with the Modesto Nuts, for whatever reason, I was just not having a good game. And as each half inning progressed, I was getting more and more frustrated with myself. And I remember at the end of one half inning, I like threw my headsets down, and I was just – I was <sighs> – I was not. I don't know if I was as bad as I thought it was, but looking back on it now, I know that the more mistakes I made, the more that I compounded those mistakes by getting down on myself. And to this day, I don't remember his name, what he looks like, but whoever was sitting next to me, he just kind of like reached out and put his right hand on my left shoulder and just said, "It's okay." He's like, "Just worry about the next half inning." Yep. He said, "Someone is about to tune into the broadcast for the first time." And they have no idea what's happened. Just tell them what's happened. And, you know, I don't even remember exactly what he said. But, uh, but like, he saved me. And I remember yeah. driving home at the end of that game also just realizing, like, get over yourself. Okay? So you had a, and, and I'm wondering if, if there's any kind of, like, moment like that for you oh, about. Yeah. About <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, more often than not, especially having such a workload on my own shoulders this year, and like our, our and our coaching staff was just phenomenal, and they pointed it out every time. Like someone would say something like, "Do you notice that she has her light on on the bus at 3 a.m. and she's still working?" And you, know, you get home at six and you're tired, and you have to get back to the office at nine because it's a home game now. And you know, home games have three times the work as road games. And um, there there were days where I would just sit down in the booth and not not to call it a loss at all, but. I think finding grace for yourself, we're so quick to give that to other people, but to take it easy on yourself a little bit, it's, it's not a lazy thing. It's, it's a human thing. And I've had a couple of days where I put on the headset. And I'm like, just call 27 ounce. It's not going to be your best. Right. We're probably not going to clip stuff from today. Like, but get the 27 ounce, hit one or two stories that, you know, you haven't told yet, or, you know, especially if it's the last game of a series, that's your last chance to do it. Empty the notebook, baby. Exactly. (laughs) And and regardless of your day, like, I'm not having to go field ground balls. I'm not having to go try to hit 98. So, and and that's what I've told them, too, is like, yeah, but you work so many hours. I'm like, yeah, but my work is intellectual and emotional. Yours is physical. Mm -hmm. And regardless of the pay discrepancy, regardless of, you know, my hours versus your hours or whatever, I can never get on that field and do what you do. So I still, in my opinion, have the easier jobs. I have no excuse to not do it and to not go out there. And, and it doesn't matter if I don't feel like I have it that day or I'm, I'm tongue-tied through the first three innings and I just can't get through stuff or I've got someone texting me about, oh, hey, by the way, you did this, you did this, you did this. But their parents don't have any other way of knowing what their son is doing except for you. And you owe it to them. I mean, they, they've that whole family has sacrificed for them to be there. So for you to not deliver on that, that's that's just selfish. Yeah. Was, was last year the first year that it was primarily nine innings for just about every single game? Yeah. Um, every now and then, my partner, Justin Baker, in Mobile for the season and a half that I was there, um, he was great. He's the reason that I got in the booth in the first place. But, uh, you know, he'd, he'd leave. And he'd have me just, you know, I'm chilling solo. He'd almost, like, we'd set up the broadcast first thing, and he'd just get up, and I'm like, all right, it's a 3-2 count, and he's out the door anyway, so we're going to keep going here. Yeah. And I, I kind of appreciated that because, you know, it just let me know, like, he trusted me to have that. Um, I had a couple games with Frisco that were solo for me and kind of venturing out there and learning to trust myself. But to know that this year 
that that was fully on me, that whatever they saw in me, they knew that that could carry for four hours a day for 140 days. Um, it's, I've never taken it for granted. It's tough. Do, do, can, you, can you pinpoint a time in the season or approximately a time in the season when you just started to feel like, okay, like I've, I've got the routine, I've got my rhythm here of, of going nine innings solo. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, opening day was a disaster. I cried. It was not a good time at all. I got home that night, and my body felt like it had been hit by a truck because I was so tense the entire game because none of the equipment worked right. So they could hear every ounce of what went on in the booth. So I, and the commercials weren't working, so I didn't even get a break between innings. So I was just I was locked for four hours. And I, I remember laying down that I'm night. getting anxiety just thinking about this. Yeah. I, I laid down that night, and gosh, uh, Corey Nido with Wilming, he'd done everything he could to try to figure out what wasn't working. I had called three different major league and ESPN audio producers. No one knew why it wasn't working. And I just I laid down that night at the non-quality end in Wilmington, Delaware, and I'm like, can I please get a rain out tomorrow because I can't do 139 of these games. I can't. This was a mistake. I shouldn't have been here. And we got a rain out, thank God. And, like, in that 24 Crash Davis hours, will get you a rain out. So beautiful. Um, and in that span, we figured it out, and everything started getting better. But Jeff Arnold with the Frederick Keys, um, he, was, he was my biggest backer this season and just helping me get better. Um, and after we had a sit-down one night that was very intensive and a focus on my work in late June, and I really feel from that point on, I got in the booth with a different confidence and a different clarity and really, really started to elevate my ability of, of play calling and not missing things. Mm-hmm. And then once you do get to that point, how does that, how does that change the confidence about because for, for me, like, there, there's sometimes it's like the third inning, and I'm like, especially if it's like 9 nothing. <laughs> oh, boy, here we go. Uh, yeah. but, but once you get through that, oh, like, okay. Because sometimes it, like, even just, like, the mental part of nine innings and 20. Like, that first year for me in Modesto, when I, I mean, I had done a bunch of play-by-play here and there. But in terms of doing, like, nine innings day after day after day. And then I started to realize, oh, like, okay, so, so if I do a, this date in whatever it seems – history in, in this inning and if I do the out-of-town scoreboard in this inning and if I do this in this inning then I'm like okay then that kind of like it helps it helped me mentally just kind of like chop up the broadcast okay. a little bit so it would help me like okay so now I know that if I'm going to go with this story I got to do it here but don't rush it you know wait make sure that the game is you know the game comes first and then okay and then go to this story anyways um this is like the longest question that I've asked, but, <laughs> but, but once you kind of had that heart to heart, how did that, how did that change the rest of the season for you? I mean, for me, I, I run through certain things in pregame and I run through certain things in postgame. And unless, like you said, it's like a nine, nothing game. And every now and then I'm like, all right, let's go to scoreboard. Let's do something <laughs> yeah. to get away from like, you know, this bloodbath. Um, I never had anything planned. I just let those nine innings be those nine innings. And, um, the stories that I usually told were ones that I had either heard well enough or that I'd researched well enough to where I just knew them. And I knew that they would produce themselves organically and paying attention, you know, really want to tell the story about Nick Lovello, but he's at bat with two outs, not ideal because then, you know, you start it and God forbid the inning ends. And you're like, all right, anyways, that was a third of it. Like, we'll come back to that eventually. And I've had to do that a couple of times, but, um, so paying attention to the, the settings before telling the story, was always huge and just making sure you do it early enough so that way his next chance isn't in the ninth inning and then you still don't have time um but it just there was an an ease after that you know my my stress levels went down i i didn't really panic about um 
you know, well, what am I going to do today? Or did they like this or did they like that? And, I mean, we had, we had sons of eight different big leaguers on our team this year, including a guy whose dad is a, is a baseball broadcasting legend. And I know they're listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got that feedback several times. And it was all good stuff. But, you know, it was just like, hey, we're listening. Like, can't wait. And I'm like, that's a, okay, that's a lot of pressure. Rather not know that's this. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, it, and it got easier with that. And, and I kind of had to look at it, too, as, you know, they're not, they're not listening to wait to judge me. If anything, they're going to reach out and, and help me out a little bit. But it just became so much more of a second nature and smooth. And I have a giant bay window in my booth. Um, and so I just got comfortable enough. And, all right, here's my book. I've got, a, I've got the lineups filled out. And I would sit on the windowsill and just, you know, you just tell stories. And I think kind of, too, like stepping away from my desk and hanging out on the windowsill, it just made it that much more of a conversation. And, mm-hmm. you know, remembering to, to paint what the sky looks like that night because mm-hmm. we have the most surreal settings at our ballpark. And if we were on the road, I always made sure at least the night before or during the off day, you know, what's the baseball history for that city? Because um, fans don't know that because they've never been there. Why is the field named after this? Who is that person that, that it got the name after it? And, um Making sure to go into detail about that stadium, because, again, they don't get to go to that stadium. So what's the seating situation? What are the colors? Going through the mascots, which, God bless, again, with Wilmington, I feel like they're regurgitated at this point, but they have Mr. Celery. Why do they have Mr. Celery when they're the Blue Rock? Why do they have Mr. Celery? Uh, he was a thrown-out vegetable costume when the Yankees were trying to introduce more vegetables into the players' diets, and the GM loved him. And so Mr. Celery only appears after they score a run and once a year at the state capitol. And he has his own song, and they have Mr. Celery jerseys. And honestly, that was one of the favorite stories out of all the listeners this year. They're like, oh, my gosh, Mr. Celery. (laughs) So then I was like, okay, that one – I can reincorporate that, you know, every now and then when we play them. That's not a one-and-done story. but My other biggest memory from my uh, first full year doing 140 was in Visalia. And I don't know if Visalia's ballpark has changed since then. I sure (laughs) as heck hope so. But um, you were outside. There was no roof above your head. So in the summer, it would be 115 degrees, and the sun is baking on your equipment and baking on you, and you're trying not to get skin cancer. (laughs) But then sometimes it rains. It doesn't rain a lot in California, but sometimes it rains, and it rained once during a game. It didn't rain enough to stop the game, but it's raining. So I'm trying to broadcast the game while I'm in the rain. And I remember whoever was the home visiting, uh, the home Visalia broadcaster, they were covered, threw me a towel, and I thought, well, the equipment means more than my. Wait, than so I home was covered, home but was the radio. Covered. Visiting's oh my not covered. Gosh. So they throw me a towel, and they're like laughing at me. Well, cover the equipment because I need the equipment for the rest of the season. Now, as you know, the scorebook is like your most important. Like, take my phone, but don't take my scorebook, <laughs> kind of thing. Okay, but I don't. I can't have my scorebook get soaking wet in the rain. So I put my scorebook underneath the table. At this point, notes, computer screens, like all of that goes out the window, right? Like. I don't want to wreck my computer. I yeah, put my okay, computer okay, away. Yeah, yeah. Like game notes, stats, like all that. And so I remember it taught me, though, like, first of all, I was like, am I really supposed to stay on the air? Like, am I really expected to keep broadcasting this game in the rain? And then the second thing that I remember at some point is I just said to myself, just go back to the most 101 broadcasting fundamentals. Just go over the top in describing exactly what is happening and don't worry about stories and don't worry about stats. And the other thing that it also taught me was that, like most broadcasters, I put the names of the players on the book. So if it's a fly ball to center, you should just have it memorized. But a lot of times we get caught, especially when it's well, especially the visiting it's the team, team yeah. to look down to see like who that player is. I didn't have that because the scorebook is underneath the table. 
And so it was one of those, like, no, like, memorize who in the F is out there, like, right now. And it, it ended up being about four innings of broadcasting in the rain, and then it stopped, and the game went, went finished. And I knew. But I remember at the end of that just thinking, like, okay, first of all, I have a story that I can tell forever, broadcasting a game in the rain where I'm getting soaked. But also it was, okay, just go back to the fundamentals at times. And, like, that game had such a profound impact on me, even though I just wanted to do – I just wanted to just – Go home. They're like, no 27 outs here. Like, I'm done. This right. is it. There, like, there's no outs. Can you please put the tarp on the field so that I can stop talking? I don't know what the question was. Uh, there wasn't a question. Uh, <laughs> I have I have semi been there. Um, not in the rain, but this year in Myrtle Beach. And uh, I, had a, I have a 32-ounce water bottle with a screw top on it. So we're coming back from break. I have, you know, my books laid out in front of me. Everything broadcasts from my laptop. Um, it, it transmits from there. I don't, I don't have a, well, I have a mixer board, but it's not what transmits. Um, and I picked up my water bottle thinking, surely I've screwed the cap back on. All 32 ounces of water. Oh, no. On my book, on my laptop. Oh, no. And, and this was one of the few games I had Susie in the booth with me. We were in Myrtle Beach. There's scores looking through the window at me because I have, like, the C on the desk. And I literally, without even thinking, she's like, I've never seen anything like this. I just took my laptop, and I flipped it to where it looked like a tent. It was upside down, so the water just kind of ran off of it. And I'm holding my scorebook out by the one dry corner to the side. I'm just calling the game. Uh-huh. I know it is what it is, and, and so I've got my headset on, and I'm kind of reaching over, and I'll make a little dot where it's still dry. And uh, and just keep going. And she's just she's watching, and she had nothing to say for that inning. And I've just I've got everything. I got water all over the desk. The computer's upside down, but hey, it still says the signal's on, so we're great. And then we finally go to break, and she's like, "What?" I'm like, "I don't know. This is just. I think I'm just accustomed to like being that much of chaos for myself." I was like, "This might as well happen." Okay, here we go. And I eventually got the book to dry out, and um, yeah, it was it was very interesting. But I, I, I get that. Just I, I pity. I did have my equipment stolen this year. That was a fun one as well. What? Yeah. You, okay, first of all, before we talk about that, you pull in the PCO, we call that pulling a Dosky because our beloved friend Johnny Dosco is famous for spilling coffee oh, no. multiple times a year all over the place. So you pulled a Dosky. Okay, I like it. I, okay. I got a little phrase with that now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anytime that you spill it, yeah, you have you have license to say that. You pulled a Dosky. Pulled a Dosky. Okay. But you got your equipment stolen. Yeah. Um, so down Eastwood Ducks, which is the affiliate of the Texas Rangers, is in Kinston, North Carolina. Um, it's a cute little town. It's not the safest. Okay. Um, 1950s-ish stadium. So the, the press box, it's small like Potomac, but there's divisions. So I actually have my own booth, but it's, it's smaller than my closet. Um, so it's, you know, plexiglass glass around three sides, and you have a little door in the back. And, I mean, I literally, it's like airport bathroom size. Like, you can kind of spin around it. That's it. Um, so we get there the first night, and I'm unpacking everything. And I first and foremost realize I don't have my crowd mic. So Matt Present, who's awesome, he, you know, gives me one of theirs. Okay, fine. We're good. Let's roll. We get, I think, an inning in in the most prolific storm I've ever seen. I was like, this is where I die. Like, you know, parts of the stadium were blowing onto the field. Like, it got ugly quick. And, and I just remember sitting there, and we're two outs in, and I look up. I'm like, the sky looks like a bruise right now. Like, it's yellow with black and green. Like, that's not ideal. And then it just hit. And, and we were like, yeah, this is done. Like, we're, there's no way we play tonight. So we suspend the game, and, you know, I put my equipment up, and I shut the door, and we leave, and everything's fine. And we've, we've been to Downey's three or four times already that season. Okay. It's 8 o'clock. We've got the rest of the night. Amazing. Doubleheader tomorrow. Starts at 5. Cool. 
4.15 the next day, I walk in the booth, and um, I, I look in, and I just have cords. And I kind of look down the hall at Matt, and he's up there, and you know, we're 30 minutes away from going on air. I'm like, hey, uh, Matt? Yeah, what's up? I'm like, um, I, don't, I don't have my equipment. I was like, did you, did you pack it? Like with the, with the rain, did you think, cause I mean, we we're under tornado warning. They're like, you're going to have to evacuate. Like, and I was like, maybe, you know, maybe they were just trying to clear out the uh, valuable stuff and, and protect it. And he's like, no, why? And then I'm and then the panic just sets in. It's like worse than when you realize you overslept for work and you start, like I, I ripped open cause I had my, my case there. I ripped open the case. Like maybe someone else put it in the case. It's not in the case. And he's like, oh, what's going on? I'm like, my equipment's not here. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, my equipment is not here. And we'd known earlier that day that his headphones were missing. But, you know, it's a $20 plug-in headphones. Someone probably just took them, whatever. Um, and we realized at that time someone had broken in and had taken all the equipment, the soundboard, the headsets, anything. Thank God I had taken my laptop home because that would have been disastrous. They broke into the, the umpire's locker room and taken their personal effects um, I'd never experienced anything like it in my life. And then we started playing with the locks and seeing what could happen. And we found out, sure enough, unfortunately, you, you could get in pretty easily from the outside. And um, lucky, I, I had a relationship with the Rangers from my time in Frisco last year. And I had to call John Blake. And I'm like, hey, you know, I know I miss you. You don't want to hear from me right now. But this happened. Um, and we got everything sorted out. But the funny thing about it was, and, and with those relationships, is Matt was, he handled it on the fly. He's like, all right, well. We'll go on air together. So I called our ESPN syndicate, and I, I let TuneIn know, and I let Stream Guys know. And I'm like, you got to pull from down east. There is no Salem. you got to pull from down east. It was over a six-hour broadcast. <laughs> so it kind of was great that we had each other for those. I mean, we were going off about the marine layer because it was the College World Series at the time. So that's all they talked about. The UCLA regional was the marine layer. It's always about the marine layer. Always the marine layer. And, I mean, we just we had a blast with each other. And he's like, well, I mean, and we kept, well, I hate the circumstances, but didn't it work out? And it was a trip. That reminds me of there was a time when I was doing Dodger Talk and – Again, it doesn't rain in, in Southern California, but it rained. There was three different rain delays in, during the game at Petco Park, right across the street from where we're uh, recording this. So, you know, one of my duties doing pre and post with Ken Levine for uh, Dodger Talk was we did basically rain delay Dodger Talk. So we did it three different times, and then we still had the post game. And I think that might have been the night that Ken coined the phrase uh, Dodger Talk for lovers because once it was after midnight, it became Dodger <laughs> Talk for lovers. But because it was, like, so crazy, like, really, we're going to have another rain delay? We're going to go on the air again and again? Mm-hmm. But, again, it's, it becomes a, this great memory. It becomes this great bonding thing for yeah. those who – experienced that and kind of got through three different rain delays. <laughs> uh, tell me about axe throwing. What do I need to know about axe throwing in my life? Uh, I mean, we can start with the basics. Um, it can't exceed 14 inches from the head of the blade to the end of the handle. Can't exceed four pounds. They look for about a full rotation a quarter to a half from point of release to the board. It's usually cottonwood boards, which uh, is locally sourced. We had the U.S. Open in Des Moines. So true to form, I flew out from Roanoke after a game. Went from Chicago to Des Moines. Went to an Iowa Cubs-Nashville Sounds game because why would I stop going to baseball? Um, and then you say hello to Alex and to uh, I, I hung Jeff. out in the booth with Alex okay. for a while, Good. yeah. And then, But the great thing was, since they were playing Nashville, is half of my kids from Frisco the year before. So I love I got, how you call them my kids. Oh, yeah. They're, they're my kids. Um, I, I get that a lot from people, too. They're like, they're not your kids. I'm like, they're my kids. I have 500 kids. They're my kids. 
Um, but, you know, I, and so I got to go down on the field and, and made friends with the Iowa staff. And, you know, they all kind of turn around and they're like, why are you in yeah, Iowa? Exactly. I think I did the same thing. What are you doing in Iowa? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, it, you know, Wes Benjamin and David Carpenter and, and, you know, just all these great guys that I haven't seen in over a year. And um, it was awesome. But the, the Axthorn community, I, the first event I had with them was the Canadian Open in March. So I went from Fort Myers, Florida to Nova Scotia in March. It's like a 70-degree difference. It was 12 when I landed. And I was like, nope, put me back on the plane. We're done. Like, this isn't it. Um, and as terrifying as they look, and he, uh, like piercings and tattoos, and uh, they, I mean, they really, they do look intimidating. They're the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life. They're so welcoming, and they want to tell their stories, and they want to share this sport with you. So it was actually a producer of mine who I worked with for the Big South Conference for their baseball and he's like, hey, do you, do you want to do axe throwing? Okay, well, I've already done swimming and track and tennis and all these other sports I never thought I'd do. So, yeah, sure, why not? Um, so I remember showing up at this event. And I'm like, oh, my God, like they're going to eat me alive. And then they start talking, and it's just the sweetest people. And, and, and now, like, they, they message me all the time. They're like, oh, my God, like, are we going to see you? We're just in Tucson for the world championship. Are we going to see you in Tucson? Like, are you going to be there? I can't. I get, I'm bringing my dog. You've got to meet my dog. And, um it's so crazy to look back at the year that I've had and be like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to go viral for getting a job. You're going to go viral for axe throwing. That's going to be your first <laughs> national contract. I can grow. Okay. Um, your, your most famous call to date is going to be because a skunk got on the field. You're going to interview a coach from a hospital bed. Like, I don't know who was drinking when they wrote this chapter of my life, but, like, I'm thoroughly entertained at this point. I think it was a uh, peanut butter... Whiskey. Whiskey. Screwball. And ginger ale. <laughs> yeah. That's what they you, were drinking the when they wrote that combo. script. And you slung it. Um, <laughs> how do they get their axes? Do they have to check the axes? Is there like a special case that the axes go in? Do they have to like put it? Like how does it get through security? So I've seen it several different ways. Uh, going to the Canadian Open was a lot more difficult for some of them. A lot of people will ship them. For example, for this world championship in Tucson, a lot of people had someone who drove to the event and drove the axes down there. And uh, a, a complication that we actually saw several run into, especially because going through LaGuardia and JFK were the main hubs before going to Canada, was they would check them in their luggage. I don't know if I, I would assume that they're in a case. If anything, the blade has these special leather covers that strap around them. So, like, when they're walking around with them at these events, like, you're not going to get sliced on the leg. But the frustration people had, and they were talking about opening up their suitcases and the axes had been taken out and, and we hear it happen all the time. Someone travels with something valuable or there's something that's a large noticeable object in their suitcase. And unfortunately it gets stolen at some point between checking that bag in and picking it up yourself. And that sucks. That's definitely not the way it should be. Um, but I think the Canadian open was an eye opener for a lot of those athletes to how much they have to go through to protect their axes. Cause you can get one for like 14 bucks, but some of these people have spent 12 to $1,500 on one hatchet. And I just, I, I couldn't imagine putting something like that in my luggage and then it's just not there. I mean, I, that, that's the airport's going to riot at that point because we're, <laughs> we're going to find it and it's going to come back to me. So the aforementioned Johnny Dosco was uh, a guest on my podcast and he was telling me about how he did play-by-play uh, -play -play of wrestling. And he goes, no, it's not play-by-play. -play, it's hold-by-hold -hold oh. in wrestling. So in axe throwing, would it be blade by blade description would it be like, like what? a throw by throw, throw maybe by so throw? here's the or funny like a... 
the rotation small, by rotation description true. of axe throwing? The small world of axe throwing. So I do sidelines for axe throwing. My play-by-play partner. Sidelines mean the bar? We're actually not <laughs> in a bar for most of them. It's crazy. Like, a lot of those axe uh, establishments have bars attached to them. But everywhere that we've had the official stuff, like the Canadian Open was at this gigantic outdoor convention thing. So they had, like, they, I'm not kidding you, they had log rolling going on. They had a dog show going on. They had uh, lumberjack competitions. But it was, like, this very open environment. And then the U.S. Open in Des Moines... Now I can't remember. They did. They had alcohol there, but there was no bar. Okay. <laughs> we'll sum that one up. Um, but they, they're very selective in which venues they choose to host the events. Now, I can't say, like, when I fly up to Boston and see my friends, if we go axe throwing, because this is now everybody's new favorite kick with Melanie is let's take her to axe throwing. Um, you know, that is attached to Is there to one in San Diego, by the way? There should be. I would be 90. If, if there's one in Roanoke, Virginia, there should be one in San Diego, California. Um, but the, the small world of the axe throwing is my play-by-play partner is Evan Lepler, who was the voice of the Salem Red Sox for five years. Um, so when we first got linked up with each other, and then I got the Salem job after we had already been assigned axe throwing. And he's like, you're never going to believe this. And then we found out the commissioner of the league lives in Roanoke. So we've all, like gone through the RVA hub at some point. We're all right there, but it's just like, it just sums up baseball in a nutshell. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I love those stories. Interviewing a coach in the hospital. Please tell that story. Uh, I've had a relationship with Liberty University since about 2013, and um, they had an opening. You know, I was, I was pretty fresh out of college, and I knew that Sam Ponder had gotten her start there, and that they have a very impressive pro. I mean, they have full-size TV trucks production rooms the whole nine it's it's unbelievable but I'd, I'd done freelance work with them every now and then that's where the big south conference came into play and, and when they hosted it um it was great so this year they had called me and i'm 40 minutes away from liberty working for salem and they offered me play-by-play for volleyball and so i accepted that came back in and their in-house female who does sidelines for football basketball their events but also does their human interests their social media their digital pieces um, she's from Minnesota. Well, the Gophers called, and they offered her a job, which she you know, pick a magical year to join Gopher football. Yeah, absolutely. Year. But she, Bobby Bowling, and she's, just, she's had a tremendous year, but she left five days before the season kicked off at home against Syracuse. And uh, so they called me, and they said, you know, I, I know it's a little crazy right now. I'm in baseball season. We are two and a half games up for the playoff push. And they said, would you want football? Okay. Was, and it was just, uh, it was nuts because it was Friday night and their home opener is the next day. It's the first time the ACC has ever traveled to Liberty. So I hadn't gotten to go to practice. I hadn't gotten to go to the press conference. I hadn't gotten to meet Coach Freeze, which was huge that this was his first return to being a head coach since Ole Miss. Um, and, and so I had no relationship apart from my production staff. I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know expectations. I knew Turner Gill left. That's it. Called the game Friday night in Salem. Tenth inning. Rain delay. Oh, no. Of course. Suspended in extra innings. And I was like, this is my life right here. And I wish I could remember who we were playing. But the other broadcasters, he's like, you're losing your mind. I was like, yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> um, so I left the stadium at like 3 a.m., crawled into bed, got up at 6 a.m., drove up to Liberty, and just studied to death. And at the time... Um, so Coach Freeze's timeline, basically, he got hired, he showed up, everything's great. He starts having back issues. Okay, well, you know, stress, you're on your feet all day, you know, whatever. We're old. We have back issues. It gets so severe during practice, he gets rushed to the hospital. 
it's not okay at that point. So he ends up having to have surgery. Okay, back surgery, not minor. Then it turns into a staph infection, and it gets severe. I mean, they're, they're 85% fatality, and it's in his spine. Like, this is nothing to, to laugh at. So we knew going into that day he would be there, but as far as we knew, we're like, don't plan on an interview. You know, you're not going to have it. But when credit to Freeze, when he showed up at the university, he wanted that media transparency. He wanted people to be able to connect with him. He wanted people to see what he was doing. And I got lucky that Jim Nichols, who is like his head, uh, was for Neil Brown at Troy University, which is where I was. And then God love Neil. So Jim was also very open with me. And, And he had that little bit of a background with me. So we're an hour out from getting ready to head to the stadium. And I've now prepared as much as I can for this. And I, and I knew, again, having grace in yourself, this is probably going to be the one game of the season where you're like, yeah, it could have done better. Um, but I knew enough, and I knew that I could contribute enough. Um, but they came in, they were like, oh, Freeze wants to do an interview. I'm sorry, what? Okay, well, let's, let's, why not? Why not? That's how this year has been, so why not? So we walk up to the stadium. I'm shaking. You know, this is a legendary coach. This is an unprecedented situation on multiple levels. And he's coaching the game from the press box. He, yes. Um, from, so a, from a bed, basically. From, it was a full-fledged hospital bed. Um, it was directly out of the hospital, all the controls, the whole nine. And because he couldn't fit in the traditional coach's room where the rest of them were, they basically cut a hole in a wall and pushed him into a suite and he had to lay, his bed was parallel to the window that looked down onto the field. And he kind of had to lay there to the side and, and watch the game. He had monitors everywhere. I mean, they hooked up a million different cameras. He had every angle. He had direct contact with the coaching staff. But, you know, we did this pregame interview and talked about his emotions and how it felt. And all of a sudden, I wake up the next morning. You know, we finished the game at 12. I have a 1, a one o'clock game with Salem. <laughs> So we're still not done. And the whole time on the sidelines, by the way, because we had the chance to clinch that Saturday night. I'm like, please don't clinch tonight. Not the one night that I'm not there, the whole season. And uh, we didn't. We clinched Sunday when I was there, and it was picturesque. But I wake up Sunday morning to get ready to go to the stadium, and I'm in a panic to get ready for that. And it's, you're tagged in Barstool. You're tagged in this. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Um, and then I realized that that hospital bed interview was a lot bigger of a deal. I think it's just the thing. Like, I've been so desensitized to weird at this point. I'm like, this is whatever. Okay. And then everybody was freaking out about it. Was it a relief to know that your Twitter was blowing up and it wasn't because of what you look like or the fact that you just got a job and some people didn't think that you should get that because of a chromosome? It was a relief to know that it didn't blow up. Um, because I said something stupid, basically. <laughs> uh, if, if anything, that was kind of the point I was at. Because I feel like football, especially since I have a sidelines role with football, that's a little more mainstream. You know, people don't really have anything to say about a female having that role anymore. But once I started realizing, you know, that it was just when I was tagged and stuff, it was just people like, oh, that's you, that's you. Instead of being like, oh, crap. <laughs> Granted, there were like the joke or two every now and then that didn't need to be made. You know, oh, he's in a hospital bed. Like, oh, it's a female. Like, Get new content. Like, yeah. I fell off my dinosaur the last time I right. heard that. Like, please move on. Um, but he's been gracious. That whole experience has been unbelievable. And he even called me. And it was so funny because I looked down at my phone. It's like, Hugh Freeze. Like, <gasps> and he's like, I just want to say thank you. You know, you were so gracious towards my family and the work that you've done. I already know. And he was like, you're one of my favorite reporters. I was like, shut up. Like, this is an SEC coach. And I'm, like, calling my dad. I'm like, Dad, like, Hugh Freeze just called me. It's great. But, um yeah, no, the reception to that was just, you know, everybody's like, what do you mean he coached in a hospital bed? I'm like, let me tell you. All right, let's wrap it up with this. How much longer until it's not a big deal that a female is doing play-by-play? Are we close? How close are we? I 
hope to God we're close. And uh, the one thing that lets me know that we're close is the fact that when this news breaks, it's other females who are mentioning that it shouldn't be news. And that's not an insult to me. It's really not. Do I appreciate the exposure? Yes. Um, but I've, I've said that all year. You know, this, this shouldn't, I've been doing this since 2013. This shouldn't be news at this point. Um, and the more women that come up and, and see that, and the one thing that I always try to impress is it's not that, it's not about pushing men out. It's not about, oh, I'm going to take a man's job. No, because there's room for all of us here. It's just that final recognition that gender doesn't play a role in what job you choose to pursue as a man or a woman. Um, in, in this industry or in any under, other industry. Like, you know, it's the same thing. Meet the Parents came out and was like, oh, there's no male nurses. Like, yes, there are male nurses, you know? Um, so normalizing gender roles and jobs to where that's not a thing is huge. And I, I'd love to say that that's within this decade that that goes by without batting an eye. You know, it's, it's all female this or, you know, it's a female in general doing this. You don't have to be an active participant. You don't have to be an athlete to be able to talk about it if you're willing to get past it and study and pay attention and listen when people share things with you. Then, you know, if you if you have that voice, you have that voice. That's it. Um, I, I'd hope that it's before 2030. I, I remember the uh, the campaign from a few years ago. I think the NHL did it first, and then some Major League Baseball teams did it, followed, was uh, this, if you can play. It's like, if you can play, yes. that's all that matters. Yep. Can you play? If you can play, then you can play. And it's also, if you can talk, or if you can describe, if you can, if you can weave the yarn of the stories or whatever, then yeah. maybe we need one of those. No, we don't need one of those. Just We had a You Can Play night this year at Salem. Really? Yep. How'd it go? It was fantastic. Um, we had a member of the women's U.S. Olympic hockey team you know, that took gold. She came out, and um, it was awesome. And, again, it, just, it goes back. The, the touching moments for me will always be, getting handwritten letters and pictures and cards from the girls that are seven and eight years old. And I've even got a couple from little boys and just how excited they were. You know, they don't, they don't even get the gravity of it, but they were just excited. Like, you know, you look like me or you sound like me and I, I can't wait. I want to play baseball or I want to talk about baseball. And, and it's just, I mean, it, it gets me emotional every time. Aw. <laughs> it's going to hit me, so we should wrap it up. All right, um, we're going to do this again, but we're just going to talk baseball and broadcasting, period. I'm about and we're not going to talk about any of the other stuff. <laughs> this is fun. It's great. That's Melanie Newman, and this is Life Around the Scenes.